Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Well, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar, but you already knew that from the intro, didn't you? If you're new, welcome. Thanks for spending some time with us as we explore just different ways to approach healthcare. It might be a different business model, it might be a different delivery model. This week, we're actually going to be circling back to a foundational principle that we follow here at the Better Outcomes Show and that we use in most of the work that I do as a consultant um, through Rehab You Practice Solutions, which is taking a biopsychosocial approach. A couple episodes ago, we had Bronnie Thompson from New Zealand come and talk with us about chronic pain and about really high-level discussion about the biopsychosocial model, about what it is, about how we use that to approach patients in pain. And this week, we've got a couple practitioners who were involved in day-to-day practice, and we're going to talk a little bit more in depth, a little bit more in the practical, if you would, about how uh, practitioners and clinicians can begin treating patients in chronic pain or experiencing chronic pain. So both of the guests this week are founding partners of Aspire OT, which is a continuing education company uh, that helps occupational therapists uh, get continuing education units for their license. But the way we connected was through a continuing education course that they were running um, here in my city of Augusta. They were kind of doing the tour and I ran into them and we kind of uh, realized that we had a, a few mutual interests in the biopsychosocial model and about chronic pain management. So Kimberly Breeden is an occupational therapist. She's been working in the field for about 25 years. She started her career as an assistant, then went back to school and became a licensed occupational therapist. Uh, her administrative experience is pretty vast. She was doing marketing and admissions for a while. She was the clinic lead of an outpatient chronic pain program. She was a manager of a multidisciplinary uh, rehabilitation clinic. She was also a regional director of operations and a corporate director of operations. Um, she was also chosen to be the Occupational Therapy or American Occupational Therapy Association 2017 uh, Leadership Development Program for Middle Managers. So she ran through that program as well. And then her professional experience kind of, again, is... We've got some good guests on the show. They, they have a lot of experience. They're experts in their field. Uh, so she's been an author, a, conti- a contributing author, a co-author of uh, peer-reviewed publications. Uh, she's been a mentor to new clinicians, a guest lecturer at all kinds of universities, and an instructor for continuing education workshops nationwide. And that, again, that's how we ran into each other was through a course that she was running. Um, And now she has the great, uh, she calls it the great pleasure to serve as one of the founding partners of Aspire OT, uh, which is a continuing education company that's exclusively for occupational therapy practitioners. Her partner in this, Nicole Rowe, is a CODA, or a Certified Occupational Therapy Assistant. She's got eight years of experience as a clinician treating uh, patients from acute care, long-term care, skilled nursing, and then a lot of her experience has been in chronic pain, chronic outpatient pain management. She's actually got a pretty interesting uh, story or journey into becoming a clinician. She was actually in radio in PR for a while before she decided to go back to school and become a clinician. So we talk about that in the show as well. She's been published in OT practice. Uh, She's co-authored two continuing education articles. Um, And then she was also the recipient of the American Occupational Therapy Association's Terry Britwell Uh, Partnership Award in 2018, and she and Kim both received that award, and she was also chosen for the Gary Kielhoffner Emerging Leader Award in 2020. So as you can see, both of our guests this week are experienced, they're well-rounded, they've got the credentials, and we, like I said, we talk a lot about the biopsychosocial model in this 
conversation, but we talk about it more from a practical aspect of, okay, we understand the biopsychosocial model. We understand that we should be looking at patients in their entirety and not as just the sum of their symptoms, but how do we do that? What does that, what does that translate to and how does it look, um, how does it affect the way we, we develop treatment plans with our patients and the, the way we might communicate? So without further ado, let's dive into the episode. Here is Kim and Nicole from Aspire OT talking about the biopsychosocial model specifically for the, cre- the treatment of chronic pain. Hey guys, welcome to the show. How are y'all? We're well. Excited to be here. All righty. Nicole, we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself kind of your professional background and kind of what brought you to to where you are now. Awesome. Um, So I am in my eighth year um, as an occupational therapy assistant. Um, I am currently working um, at one of the founding partners for Aspire OT, which we're going to talk a little bit more here in in a minute. I also serve as an adjunct instructor for an OTA program in East Tennessee. Um, For volunteer work, I serve on the Student Involvement Committee for the Tennessee Occupational Therapy Association, which I really enjoy. We're obviously trying to get students more involved and advocate um, and meet their needs, which I think is a lot of fun. Uh, Professionally in OT, I have um, an interest in pain, which we're going to talk more about today. But I'm also really interested in um, advocacy for OTAs and our value in the profession. And I think our value is definitely recognized. But working to advocate for OTAs, but also helping OTAs find their own individual voices in advocacy and leadership uh, is really one of my big passions um, in the profession. I also have um, some experience before being an occupational therapy assistant. Um, I have a four-year degree in communications uh, where I served or I um, I I worked in television news. I started off as a video editor while I was getting my degree, Um, worked as a television news producer. I did go on to do some marketing. Um, I worked for a publishing company doing that, and then a brief stint as a radio personality. And I really, (laughs) I I love all that background uh, because I think it actually makes me a better OT practitioner, um, just having those experiences. Yeah, I'm a fan of interacting with any professional really that's kind of got like a, a depth of knowledge and out, you know, areas outside of what they do for their quote unquote day job, you know, gives you something a little more to talk about. <laughs> yes, for sure. Yeah. So Kim, tell us a little bit about you. So my name is Kimberly Braden and um, I am actually an occupational therapist and I'm one of the founding partners of Aspire OT, which I'm always very excited <laughs> to tell everyone about. Um I've been practicing really for over 25 years. And in those 25 years, um, I've actually practiced as an OTA as well as an OT. So most of my practice is in adult settings, such as outpatient, inpatient rehab, acute care, SNF, and home health. But I also had this really great opportunity to work for about 12 years in administration. And I served in a lot of different roles in a couple different um, settings and companies, but those roles include regional director of operations as well as corporate director of operations. So that really gave me a lot of insight into reimbursement and really improved my understanding how we all work together, um, you know, in the healthcare, uh, the whole healthcare continuum. Yeah. Kind of the, the big, the, the man behind the curtain that clinicians don't often see, but there's a lot of stuff going on, right? Productivity, utilization, all of that. So, so. And Absolutely. And it actually reinforced just what a value that we do provide, not just to the clients that we serve, but to the entire system. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's easy. You know, I come from outpatient OT as well, and it's, it's easy to feel like you're just hitting, you're a productivity mule, right? You're just trying to get your numbers, you're trying to hit your minutes for the day, but seeing kind of the value, not just the, like you said, not just to the clients that we treat, not to the patients that we serve, but the organization as a whole makes it feel like, okay, we're, we're more than just number crunchers, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, we contribute to those outcomes and I think we contribute more to those outcomes than we give ourselves credit for. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me a little bit then about Aspire OT before we dive into the the main topic at hand here, which is the biopsychosocial model. Well, Nicole and I are always really excited to talk about Aspire OT. Um, Our continuing education journey actually started with um, presentations really at the state association level. 
And um, one thing kind of led to another, and we began kind of instructing nationally. Um, and we started really becoming disappointed that the professional education companies out there would not allow us the opportunity to provide our courses specifically for occupational therapy practitioners. Rather, we were asked to provide our courses for multiple disciplines. And so this really wasn't as consistent with Nicole nor I's values <laughs> or our professional missions. So we decided to take those no's and we turned them into yeses and we created Aspire OT. And so we're a continuing education company that provides continuing education courses that are created specifically by OT practitioners, specifically for OT practitioners. And we also work to support our state occupational therapy associations through our state association partnership program. So we are both really committed to empowering passionate occupational therapy practitioners. And by doing that, through um, providing very affordable continuing education. Yeah, and I mean, it looks like you've got all kinds of stuff on your site, everything from spinal cord injury to neurodiversity. It seems like you cover a big breadth of information within Aspire, right? And that's just the beginning. We're a very new company, so we um, hope everyone stays tuned to what we can do over this next year. Yeah, no, that's exciting for sure. And part of the reason that we got connected or we came into contact with each other was I actually attended a course that you did through, I can't remember, one of these big companies, um, but it was all in the biopsychosocial model, right, which is kind of what we're here to talk about. So very briefly, for those clinicians that maybe have heard about it or kind of, you know, you've, you've maybe seen the Laura Mosley TED Talks or something like that, but you don't really have a, a full grasp of what the biopsychosocial model is, kind of what is it? And then how can rehabilitation practitioners, mainly occupational therapists, kind of begin using it or understand it to implement it in practice? So the biopsychosocial approach considers not just the biological, but also the psychological and social factors and their dynamic and complex interaction in understanding health, illness, and healthcare delivery. So for pain, the biopsychosocial model is the most widely accepted model for the treatment of pain. Um, and it's really recommended specifically by the Pain Management Interagency Task Force. Um, the biopsychosocial model really is very similar to occupational therapy when you think about it. Um, we as OT practitioners believe that engagement in occupation promotes health and well-being. And we've always recognized a view of health that's now also adopted by the World Health Organization, that health is really a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and it's not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. And so as occupational therapy practitioners, much like the biopsychosocial model, we believe that you treat the whole experience, right? Yes. So it's the concept of illness versus disease. And I think a lot of the biomedical models focus specifically on that disease process. And we as OT practitioners have always understood that it's about the individual's experience through that condition that really is, is what is going to you know, improve occupational engagement, that we have to look at the mind-body-spirit connection. So the biopsychosocial model gives you that framework to look beyond just the biology. Yeah, it's funny. When I was first, you know, I worked at a outpatient specialty clinic doing mainly chronic pain at the VA. And I was, you know, trying to figure out just in my own professional journey, kind of how you wanted, how I wanted to treat and serve these patients. And I came across a biopsychosocial model and I was like, wait a minute, this is like everything they taught us to do in school. Only now it's, you know, being applied to a much larger, I mean, at the VA, we ended up rolling out huge biopsychosocial programs that spanned everything. But especially for OT practitioners, it's like, man, this is, this really feels like home to us, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think that's what we're already trained to do, right? We're trained yeah. to look at all of those aspects as a whole and as equal. Um, you know, they're all equally important. And I think that, you know, we already have that training in developing those occupational profiles. And that is, that is, you know, how we treat, that is our whole lens um, that we look at everything through. Yeah. And I think I'll chime in here a little bit too, is the other thing about the biopsychosocial model is that it's client centered. 
Um, and of course, that is what our training is also all about um, and has been for a really long time. And so I really think that that's a, a really important component too that occupational therapy practitioners bring. Yes, exactly. Very much patient-driven versus, you know, clinician-driven treatment programs and goals and all that kind of stuff, right? Well, I think we've always identified that the patient is the expert in their own life, in their own experience, and in, you know, their own occupational engagement. And so the biopsychosocial model really takes and allows the client to be the expert, kind of building on what Nicole said is client-centered, where we are just merely to support them in the process. We're not coming in as the expert to direct, um, you know, to provide any direction, really. We're just there to provide that support and knowledge. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we're not doing things to them or for them as opposed to just supporting them through it, right? Absolutely. All righty. Well, and you mentioned when when you were talking about the biopsychosocial model, how it's it's the most commonly used or most popular framework for treating chronic pain. So let's talk a little bit about just the idea of pain and chronic pain, especially here in the U.S. Like how big of a problem when we say chronic pain, what kind of what kind of issue are we dealing with here? <laughs> well, the, the, the most recent and, and current information says that over 50 million U.S. adults um, are thought to have chronic pain. And of those, it is estimated that 19.6 of those are actually um, experiencing high impact pain, which is pain that interferes with daily life or work activities. That's 19.6 um, so million? 19.6 million, Holy yes. Cow, all right. And so, you know, for occupational therapy practitioners, when we're looking at interferes with daily life or work activities, we're talking about occupations, right? Whether it's ADLs, IADLs, work, leisure, um, play, health management, all of those. And so really as OT practitioners, when we look at those numbers, we really can expect to encounter individuals with pain in almost every setting that we practice in. Yeah. Not just your pain clinics, right? That, absolutely. And it's, it's often, you know, a, you know, not chronic pain, but then looking at acute pain, it's important to look at both acute and chronic. Acute pain is, is you know, pain in general is the most common reason that individuals seek healthcare services. And when we're looking at surgical procedures and things like that, pain is, you know, a, an absolutely anticipated <laughs> yeah, byproduct exactly. of, a, of a procedure. So it's more than chronic pain. We're seeing acute pain as well. And, and you know, the biopsychosocial model sees pain as biopsychosocial, whether it's acute or chronic. Yeah. So it's not just a neurophysiological response, right? There's an emotional component to pain and a historical, even context and perception component of pain, right? Well, social, that's what, you know, those social components, our environment, our culture, those things outside of us that are outside of our control, those things that we as occupational therapy practitioners have always considered um, as very important and impacting one's health. Yeah. Well, and you said pain is probably the, the number one reason why patients or clients might come to see us, you know, probably access healthcare in general. How much of that do you think just comes from this idea of like pain being the, the next vital sign and all of that? Because I think that has led into some of this, like the opioid epidemic that we're seeing, right? Yeah, and I definitely think, um, you know, it pain and the opioid epidemic, there's no question is kind of, I mean, they're related. Um, I think, I think how they've impacted and contributed um, to one another is, is very complex. And a lot of people who are a lot smarter than I have, have <laughs> been working to answer those questions. You know, we know that, you know, um, around 20 years ago, there was an increased emphasis, as you mentioned, on treating pain. Um, there was also the increased marketing by pharmaceutical companies regarding opioids and their ability to treat pain. And then at the same time, there was a lack of time um, for healthcare practitioners and payment systems that really support treating how complex pain is. And really, we know that last one has not changed a whole lot. Exactly, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a challenge for us today. But that those factors that I just mentioned really led to an increase in prescribing of opioids. Um, and according to the CDC, that that increase peaked around 2012. 
also at the same time, um, our system, our healthcare system, our, our culture began to see uh, an increase in adverse events related to prescription opioids. Um, so the CDC reports that in 2017, overdose deaths um, involving prescription opioids um, were five times higher than those in 1999. And of course, that is all concerning. Uh, but the opioid, you know, epidemic, it's complex. Um, and that, you know, even just trying to break down the statistics, when you hear statistics in the media or looking at statistics and research, um, you know, there's some that are related to only prescription opioids. Other statistics also include illicit opioids, such as heroin. Um, and I'm not necessarily saying either of those statistics are better than the other, but even trying to just wade through. Yeah, but just getting an accurate representation is difficult, right? If everything's kind of being mixed together. Yeah, so I think it's very complex in, in how the development of it. And then, you know, of course, um, our healthcare system has, um, systems have been trying to address um, the um, combating this opioid crisis. And I think, you know, we also have to think about um, that how the opioid epidemic and the efforts to combat it actually have affected those who have pain. Um, we know in the last several years, especially since the CDC guidelines in 2016, um, there is data that suggests that there are increase in suicide rates um, for those who uh, demonstrate characteristics of pain. Um, which is, of course, very, very concerning. Um, patient abandonment um, has been a recognized issue. Yeah. Um, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services really uh, acknowledges that stigma is a major concern um, for those who have pain, and it's a significant, and they use the word significant, barrier to care. Um, and so kind of thinking about, um, you know, what they, the Department of Health and Human Services goes on to say is that we really should be aware as healthcare practitioners that we can't confuse treating pain and treating addiction, that they're two separate things. I mean, I think that's really important um, to consider in all of this. Yeah, yeah, no, you, you bring up a whole lot of points there because there is, when you talk about the, the op opioid epidemic, it gets politicized and there's so much going on. And it is, it's both a, 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 re a really a result of, policy and incentives like on an economic level but then there's also like the whole aspect of what patients expect from their clinicians and how they interact with the healthcare services and the healthcare system in general right can we is your experience as clinicians treating patients with chronic pain have you noticed that there's a there's almost an expectation on the part of patients to receive some sort of passive care as opposed to any other kind of care they want you to do something for them to take away their pain right well, I think that's not only their expectation, but until I started working with pain, I felt like that was the ex expectation put on me as a practitioner, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think before I understood that really the primary goal for individuals with chronic pain is teaching them self-management, I had the, you know, the expectation that I was supposed to go in, you know, ask their, uh, that client their subjective pain rating, and somehow through my treatment, during that session, I was supposed to lower that subjective. Make it go pain down, rating. right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I think I think it's a natural byproduct, right? If we have that expectation on ourselves, then I think those who are receiving healthcare services are going to expect that. And I think that is, you know, one of the big efforts at a national level, you know, through all of the policy changes is to, you know, change healthcare providers. Um, expectations and their understanding of pain that we're working really towards self-management and that's definitely a challenge for you know the individuals that we're working with because you know for those with chronic pain think about if it's chronic so they've been dealing with this a minimum of three to six months but yeah. for many it's been years and years and so they you know have been to multiple healthcare providers and there's a significant amount of frustration frequently, right? Um, they feel like they're going through a lot of hoops, a lot have experienced a lot of changes in the health or the treatment they did receive, and maybe they were satisfied with that treatment. And so, you know, they're coming to us as healthcare professionals, especially occupational therapy practitioners, maybe not um, because they initiated that. It may be a product of their treatment was changed and now occupational exactly, therapy. Exactly, yeah. 
So absolutely. <laughs> but I also think that that's a welcome challenge for all occupational therapy practitioners, because isn't that how we view all conditions? Right. I mean, when you think about our perspective, our perspective is about enabling our clients to engage in occupation, no matter what their physical, mental, you know, psychological abilities, cognitive abilities are. So I think we are already kind of equipped to deal with that challenge. And we, we are always, you know, really supporting our clients in becoming better self-managers and becoming more active participants in their own treatment. And I think, you know, pain now, as we understand it more, all healthcare providers who are, you know, providing treatment for pain are coming in with that understanding. We need to, you know, improve their active involvement of their own um, care. But I think as occupational therapy practitioners, that's always been our goal. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's funny, you know, active involvement and all that. And you see, even in the literature that's coming out these days, everything from, you know, the increase of passive modalities causing, you know, clinician dependence on the parts of patients. And, you know, why would we do this kind of treatment if it's going to result in them wanting to come back next week because they can't get better unless you, you know, do whatever manipulation or stretch them or, you know, what apply whatever treatment to them as opposed to helping them self-manage, right? Most definitely. Um, and I think that that is that movement from the looking at it from that biomedical lens from a practitioner and a client um, standpoint and looking towards biopsychosocial and looking uh -huh. at illness um, and the client experience and then empowering the client to then begin to take active steps to manage that experience. Yeah. And for those, I'm sure that most people have a, an understanding of what the biomedical model is, but let, let's just define that. What is the biomedical model? The one that we've been using for the last you know, couple hundred years and <laughs> centuries, right? <laughs> so I, the biomedical model basically kind of sees pain as a biological issue that requires some kind of medical or surgical treatment, right? Yeah. And so I think, you know, going outside of pain, the biomedical model sees sees disease as a process, right, um, that requires that kind of treatment, and it doesn't take into account the individual's experience. It really focuses merely on those biological factors. Yeah, it's very much and, like there's a pathophysiological dysfunction, and we have to fix it, right? Absolutely, and when you think about that, how do you, um, how do you, are you able to kind of bring that in, in alongside of managing chronic conditions, right? That, that approach isn't compatible when you have a chronic condition. So it really kind of makes sense that a biopsychosocial model would be the most appropriate model in, you know, looking at specifically chronic conditions. But just overall, I think as clinicians, we can all attest, we can treat an individual that has the exact same condition, same diagnosis, they receive the same treatment, no matter what it is, but their experience is very different. Their exactly, engagement yeah. and occupation is very different. And so what are those factors if they have the same providers and the same treatment? The factors are their individual context, you know, those personal factors that are specific to them, the environment they live in, their culture, their beliefs, all of that are going to impact that. Yeah. So then let's take a step into kind of how we as clinicians can make a real impact on maybe it is somebody who's, you know, I had this a lot at the, I was at the VA circa 2013, 2014, when, when the, when everybody at the department of health and human services was saying, we got to stop, we got a problem with the opioids. We got to just cut them back. And we saw an influx of patients who came to us and they were you know saying, I've been on you know, fentanyl or this kind of pain medication for years and years and years. And now they're just pulling it cold Turkey. So they're in front of you, they're upset <laughs> because what, like you said, they were, they were satisfied with the way their, their pain was being managed. And now they're, that's been pulled away from them. And now they're kind of seeing you and they're like, what now? So how can we as, as clinicians, as occupational therapists approach a patient that might be in that situation, understanding that they've been coming, you know, they might've had pain for years and years and years, and they're, they're still not having any meaningful um, results, if you would. Like, how can we make an impact on their lives? Well, so, it starts initially with assessment, 
right? And so the assessment part is utilizing therapeutic use of self and just allowing the client to really explore and identify their own experience is what I found addressing the frustration, not arguing, Yeah. <laughs> right? You know, understanding it, validating them as the expert um, and really identifying where they're not satisfied and what their expectations are. And then, um, you know, I think once you establish that with the assessment, then, you know, the foundations for treatment, um, and Nicole, I'm going to let you take that over. <laughs> so I think that, you know, the, the foundations for treatment, you know, it, it kind of continues. Um, you know, I think that with the biopsychosocial model supporting, you know, patient-centered care, and we've talked about um, empowering the client and um, helping to move them towards self-management. So we have to really develop that therapeutic relationship. Um, and in uh, occupational therapy, we're trained to use therapeutic uh, use of self. And a lot of the literature outside of occupational therapy refers this to this as the therapeutic alliance instead of the therapeutic relationship. Um, and so, as Kim mentioned earlier, setting aside our own agendas and thoughts as a practitioner, like those are there, but really being opening to partnering with the client and listening, especially to their narrative, as Kim mentioned, and their lived experience with pain. But I think it even actually starts before that client sits down in front of us. Hopefully is that as an OT practitioner that we need to seek out additional resources and training for pain. Um, it is widely recognized in healthcare that our entry level training does not, is not satisfactory for pain. Yeah, um, across and so, the boards. <laughs> yes, across the boards. Um, and so thinking about if you haven't um, looked at pain since you were in school or even if recently in the last several years to seek out those. I know um, I looked at pain and as Kim mentioned, you know, kind of all wrong when I was working in acute care and skilled nursing before I um, really sought out some additional training and resources. Um, and so understanding more about the pain process um, and what influences that process is very important. And that speaks to that biopsychosocial model. So it helps us as a practitioner adjust our lens um, to that biopsychosocial approach. But then when that client is in front of us, we want to partner with them to help them understand more about what's happening related to those biological, social, and psychological factors that's impacting their daily, their experience with pain and thus impacting their daily life. So if we have a good foundation for that as a practitioner and we use the time to develop that therapeutic relationship and make sure that they feel heard, then we're able to step in and go, may I talk to you really about some things that may you may not be aware of that is influencing your experience and really starting that partnership. Um, and I think that that's a, a very kind of practical, um, you know, uh, approach towards those initial steps during treatment. I also think, you know, thinking about just making an impact on clients who are experiencing chronic pain, it can actually be even um, a larger scale. So thinking about a population or a group influence that really as OT practitioners, we can work to combat the stigma that clients face. Um, because any, if you have worked with someone who has chronic pain, you can hear in their narrative the stigma that they have faced from family and friends, from health, other healthcare practitioners, from themselves, um, even. And that is, that is something that really impacts their daily life. You know, so if you're educated on the pain process and the biopsychosocial model, then that allows you to educate other members of the healthcare team and allows you to educate your client um, about the biopsychosocial model, model about um, the pain processes and pain can become a disease within itself. Um, and then also talking about the differences between being treated for pain and being treated for addiction. You know, we understand that um, physical dependence is not addiction, but oftentimes our clients do not. Um, and just speaking up um, within our own healthcare system, the facility that we work with, our, our own teams that we work with, um, to using that biopsychosocial uh, treatment approach for, um, you know, treating pain that's free from bias 
or the assumption that if they have pain and they're on it, that they have an opioid prescription that's being prescribed by a physician, that that means that they may, that they're going to be addicted and that that's a problem. So really addressing the stigma, I think is big from a, a population approach. Yeah, no, I think um, it's funny, like everything from what you said, you know, this patient might be receiving an opioid legitimately, right, from their physician. Maybe it is in that, you know, whatever the, the acute window and they're trying to treat it very quickly and then get them off the opioid, whatever the, whatever it is, how many patients have you treated that, that tell you, oh, I'm not going to be addicted, I promise, or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, you can tell that they're, they're thinking about it and they're almost fearful, right, of either becoming addicted or being seen as a, you know, someone just seeking opioids, right? Absolutely. And that can impact their recovery, you know, especially for acute conditions, uh-huh. right? Um, you know, um, in acute conditions, sometimes being able to manage that pain is going to get them moving faster, get them, you know, meeting those outcomes faster and their hesitance to maybe take those opioids. And we as occupational therapy practitioners, I think it's out of our scope of practice to, you know, give too much information (laughs) on opioids, but we can also, you know, assure them, you know, that they can have a frank conversation with that prescribing provider and maybe, you know, encourage them to seek out a little bit of additional information before they make that decision and helping them to understand um, that, you know, if the prescribing provider felt like it was necessary, there may be some benefits to their recovery. Yeah. Well, and that kind of hinges back on that therapeutic use of self, right? Like we need to be able to leverage our relationship with the patient to say, no, you can go to this other provider and have a conversation. But I mean, in, in reality, how many, how many patients come to you and they, maybe they've seen five or six other clinicians and the, the opportunity to develop a strong therapeutic alliance or therapeutic relationship, whatever you're going to call it, isn't there, right? So I'm pretty optimistic. I think there's always an opportunity <laughs> to establish that relationship. And I think Nicole's and I in experience, you know, both of us would say that we've had a lot of success in doing that. Um, I feel like um, my training, um, you know, and my occupational therapy training really prepared me for that. Um, you know, being able to, you know, utilize not only therapeutic use of self, but motivational interviewing and those coaching strategies. Mm-hmm. And also, I think the longer you practice, you know, the more you would think that the more we know, but I think there's a rec- more of a recognition of what we don't know exactly, the longer we yeah. practice. And so I think just recognizing that client is the expert and allowing them that opportunity to share their experience and for them to reflect on their experience because they're so defensive. And I think they're, they're used to being asked a lot of questions and, you know, based on those specific answers. And, um, you know, I think when we step back and let them share, um, I think that alliance or that, that relationship just develops naturally. Um, you know, I think if it's less of us and more of them, they can, they can tell. And, you know, I think that just listening, like Nicole said, that active listening, people feel like you care if you take the time to listen. And that's, that's really the basis of a relationship, right? Trust exactly, and, yeah. and caring. And so if we can convey that we're there for them, not on our own agenda, I think it's, it's going, that relationship is going to actually um, have a better potential for developing because they did come. I think that's the thing to remember. If they've walked in our door then they still feel like there's hurdle, an opportunity. Right? <laughs> That's right. They they are there. They felt like it was at least worth their time. They may be skeptical, but they haven't given up, right? Because they're there. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, looking at some of the literature that's coming out, even what you say about that trust, that being heard, like when patients go back and they rate their satisfaction with with services they receive, you know, oftentimes we as clinicians, at least I know I felt this way coming out of a biomedical model originally, like this patient's got to get, you know, 100% function back, they've got to have zero pain, and then they're going to rate me as, you know, amazing or whatever. But when you look at it, these, these patients are rating things like, I was heard by my clinician, they understood me, right? Like they took the time to listen to me. All of those things that aren't really 
you know, like technical, right? It's kind of the soft skills or the, the interpersonal skills that play such a huge role in developing that trust and relationship and ultimately making patients more engaged, right? And I think sometimes it's about being a little bit vulnerable as a clinician. Uh, a lot of times in, for me, um, you know, when I was working with someone who had chronic pain and we were kind of discussing, um, you know, different strategies or pain science, neuroeducation, um, pain neuroscience education, um, that I would, I would just openly say, you know, I, I, because for myself, I don't have chronic pain. That's not something that I face in my life every day. And so I would acknowledge that and say, you know, in this room, you are the expert of living with chronic pain every day. And so I, I need, I would love to hear your opinion. I want to hear about your experience so that way we can work together. And so a lot of times I just even acknowledged it out loud because I think that that is so important towards being genuine and, and building that trust. Yeah. And that a strength-based yep. oh, strength approach. You uh -huh. know, and, and finding, like as Nicole said, when they share their experience, you're going to find what they've succeeded at. And when you can help them identify what they've already been successful with, they're going to actually feel, you know, more confident in being able to go to the next step, right? Because they've, if you can identify what they've done well, instead of, I think, a biomedical model, we always look at what's impaired, Yes. Right. We're always pointing out what is not within normal limits, what hasn't met the criteria. Right. Um, with our standard deviations and <laughs> our standardized tests. And so I think when we can look at it from a strengths based approach and help them identify they've already been successful. Right. If, if they are, you know, if they've been able to manage with their pain for three months, they they have successfully been able to deal with their pain in some level for three months. So what, what is it that you, you know, you feel like enabled you to do that and how can we build on that? Yeah. Well, and part of this I'm assuming too involves understanding like a client's, like we said, they might come to you and they might be skeptical, right? So we, sometimes we've got to get them over the hurdle, even like taking the, you know, if you're going to go through like a behavioral change model or something like that, but understanding like this patient might be pre-contemplative you know like you might not even know that there's or even see the value that we might provide or what there's the reason for being there even you know right so we've got to take him or her and get them from this idea of kind of being on the fence about becoming engaged in treatment to kind of taking action right and how much of that do we need to be involved with as clinicians and how much of that is kind of, we hope we, you know, we do our best and we hope that they get there. Right. <laughs> so I think that that's the beauty of occupational therapy is that we're kind of trained to, to do, go through that process to support the client so they can find their own reasoning. Right. So the use of motivational interviewing so that it's the client's own self-discovery through the facilitation of the questioning by the OT practitioner. Um, and I think that's one area that we can really shine is that, you know, we don't want to take someone um, and just, if they're not following through with recommendations, so the easy one to think about is like a home exercise exactly, program, yeah. right? <laughs> um, you know, which we, we love being occupation-based, but we'll use the easy example. Um, but so thinking about, well, you know, sometimes those folks get labeled non-compliant you know, but what if, you know, we need to think about where they are in that stage of change, and then how can we use the tools that we have as OT practitioners to help the client see their own reasoning and their own goals to then institute that change? Yeah, well, we've talked about motivational interviewing a couple of times here. So for those clinicians that might be either just starting out or don't really have a, a real understanding of what um, motivational interviewing is kind of let's just define it what is motivational interviewing kind of what's an example of a question that would qualify as a motivational interviewing question <laughs> so <laughs> motivational inter interviewing is kind of a client-centered inner interview approach um, and it's really based on trying to help someone identify how their behaviors are lining up with their actual desires, right? What we want to do and what we're actually doing. Um, so, you know, I think 
um, you know, questions just asking about, you know, how satisfied someone is. I think um, I've encountered this several times where have individuals with chronic pain, but they're very satisfied with their occupational engagement. Right. Yeah. And so we I, we just assume because they have pain that they're going to need to to participate in some program or but if they're satisfied and they're doing everything they want to do and they still have pain, I think sometimes that's the first thing to identify, you know, is there a gap in what we want to do and what we're actually doing? So, you know, I'm from a motivational interviewing question and Nicole may have a better example. Um, but just kind of asking someone, you know, um, you mentioned that the doctor, you know, felt like it was really important to increase your physical activity for your overall pain management. Um, and you mentioned that you're not doing that. So can you tell me a little bit about why you're not doing that? And, you know, what is your, you, the doctor said, you know, he felt like your pain, probably would not be able to, you know, was not going to improve if you didn't try to improve your self-management and increase your physical activity. So tell me why you're not concerned about that, right? Instead of saying, why aren't you doing it? Tell me why you're not concerned about your pain, you know, not improving or getting worse. Nicole, you might have a much better example than I came up with. No, I think that that was a good one. And sometimes even just starting off and saying, so what are you concerned? What's your level of concern? Um, and a motivational to, uh, interviewing tool that can be very usely, useful is because really at this point, you're asking for some pretty subjective information. So, you know, give them a scale on a scale of zero to 10. How concerned are you about this? you know, and, you know, or how likely do you think that you would be to change? Um, you know, and so that gives you a way to kind of measure a little bit. And then through some discussion, you can follow up later on, you can um, ask permission, that's very important in mo motivational interviewing, if you are going to provide education, um, ask for permission, would it be okay if I shared some things? And then at the end, you can follow up and ask that scale again, and see how that changes for the client. And that gives you some really great information and you can kind of start to see if that they might be moving along to uh, um, planning or an action stage. Yeah. And, or they might just stay, you know, be, be the same, right? In which case you either go back to the drawing board or you, you come up with another strategy, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and sometimes that's when you, you really try to start to listen. This is where the, the, the therapeutic alliance comes in is listening to what is important to the client. Yes. So if that motivational interviewing, you're not really kind of getting anywhere, maybe you shouldn't shift gears and, and maybe they've talked about, you know, if they mention the grandkids and their face lights up and how much they really just want to enjoy being with their family. So then you can start to say, so how much does that, this influence, you know, it sounds like your family is really important and cooking meals for your family is really important. How much do you feel like that your pain is impacting that? And then that opens the door to them saying, you know, possibly, um, you know, yes, this really impacts it. And so have you ever thought about, you know, have, do you have ideas about how then you could work to have that impact be less? And you have to listen. That's the thing about motivational interviewing. You can't answer, you can't ask the question with an agenda for the answer you want you have to really turn on that curiosity, which I think is one reason why I really love motivational interviewing, is that you have to be truly curious about what this client's um, ideas and needs and desires, the motivations are, so you can help guide them to those things. Yeah, it's, you're, not, you're not asking a question with an answer in mind. You're really just, it's totally unjudgmental. You're just trying to listen to get down to the root, like what is really motivating this particular client in this particular situation, right? Yes. And, and really, I have come across very few individuals who have goals. You know, there's something they want to achieve or they're dissatisfied that weren't willing to consider their options. You know, I think it's, it's about, we have to identify first, if there's a gap, is there something they're not doing? Um, because a lot of times we want them to do it or the physician wants them to do it. But if, yes. if that's not a goal for them personally, whether it be weight loss or, you know, anything else, then I think we have to understand that, that that's not their personal goal. But um, I have come across very few people that 
really had goals and they weren't doing what they wanted to do, they were dissatisfied, that they weren't willing to consider their options. But a lot of times I think we have to understand the history. You know, how many times have they maybe tried that in the past and it wasn't successful? Yeah, exactly. You know, we, we really have to kind of learn why do they have these beliefs, right? These, the, their beliefs may, may not be based on fact, just maybe their experience. They may believe because they've tried it twice that it's not going to work. And we might have to, you know, educate them to, well, maybe there are some other ways to, you know, implement that same strategy. Maybe these were things you hadn't tried. Yeah. And also sometimes asking that question of, so, you know, for example, if, if somebody has been recommended to, you know, lose weight um, at doctor, healthcare practitioner after healthcare practitioner, um, or foot checks is another one, you know, really just taking the time and going. So I know you, you've heard about, I, I'm assuming somebody's, you know, talked to you about this before and they'll go, oh yeah, and, you know, potentially, and then go, so did anybody ever tell you why? Like, does that, does that, is that curious? Are you curious about that? And they'll go, no, I have no idea why they want me to do this. And so there's a, a missing piece in all of this. And so you, you have to take that time to, to ask and, um, and, you know, use the relationship to, to find out information. And then, you know, through permission, um, motivational interviewing, sometimes to find the motivation for maybe why they want to do that. But it also helps if they understand, like, the rationale, too. Yeah, just sometimes baseline knowledge, right? I, I tell students and, you know, clients and all that when I do training and stuff, it's like, you know, oftentimes the, the physician is in there for what, seven, 10 minutes with a, with a client usually, with a patient before they refer them to somebody else. And part of what ancillary healthcare services, OT being one of those, has a real advantage in that, you know, we see these people for what, an hour at a time maybe, sometimes multiple times a week, like the ability to drill down and maybe it is discover that piece of, missing information or drill down to the real motivation is really one of the skills and one of the gifts that we have in, in our model of service delivery, right? And maybe it's not motivation. Maybe the motivation is there. Maybe the environment isn't conducive. Yeah. You know, if we have someone who um, has a diabetic diet and they're labeled non-compliant with that diabetic diet, is it because they, they maybe don't have the financial resources to afford better food choices. You know, I'm in a rural area in East Tennessee. Nicole is too. Um, you know, some may not have an operating stove, right? I mean, oh, we, wow, we yeah. really have to kind of think about things like that. Is the environment supporting that? Sometimes it's things totally out of their control. Um, you know, a, a busy mom who's working two jobs may have a really hard time implementing new routines, right? So it's about, I think that's, you know, the beauty of occupational therapy is we can look at all of that. We can break all of that down, assess all of that and see if we can find what the barriers are. It may be well beyond motivation. It may be beyond, you know, it may be a, a situation where the resources are just not in place. Yeah. Almost a social determinants of health, right? It Absolutely. seems like that's been getting more and more popular and for good reason. <laughs> Absolutely. So then kind of pulling it back to the, the biopsychosocial model and implementing it into practice, what's, what would you see as, as maybe the, the major challenges or barriers to clinicians and organizations implementing a biopsychosocial approach to both assessment and treatment? So from assessment, I feel like there, from an occupational therapy perspective, there's very little barriers, right? Yeah. Um, for us, I think it's really important. One of the things that I realized very quickly when um, I started working specifically in pain was that as an OT practitioner, I lacked an understanding of pain but I had all the skills to treat and assess it from a biopsychosocial model. Um, I didn't need to learn those skills. And, you know, um, the pain management um, best practices interagency task force identifies that across all healthcare fields that there's a lack of training to the treatment of pain. And what I would distinguish is occupational therapy. We lack the training to the understanding of pain as a biopsychosocial um, mm -hmm. condition, but we have the training to assess and treat it. So I think we face fewer challenges in the assessment part. Um, I think one of the challenges I see is a, um, I think there's a doubt or a concern of implementing these 
um, that kind of approach, whether it's medically necessary, right? Looking yeah. at it from a reimbursement model. And so I think that's a huge challenge. And I think that if we start really looking more and more research is coming out, not just in pain. I mean, the evidence is there. That is the approach to use for pain. So all of our interventions are medically necessary, right? If they're biopsychosocial interventions. But I think there's a lot of evidence coming out from, you know, the perspective of chronic conditions in general, that this is a good model to use. So I think the biggest challenge is understanding, you know, specifically as OT practitioners, that we don't need to just focus on the biological to support medical necessity that, you know, it is identified that it's the, the mind, body, spirit, that by all of those biopsychosocial components do qualify for medical necessity and, you know, that we need to implement all of them to improve health. Yeah. And hopefully as time goes on, we move into like value-based reimbursement models or something like that, where we don't have to worry too much <laughs> about that kind of thing. And, um, and then from a treatment perspective, what do you think, Nicole? So from a treatment perspective, I think kind of the one of the biggest challenges is maybe our own habits and routines as OT practitioners. Um, as treating clinicians, you know, uh, it's very complex right now. Um, you know, the productivity, payment models, um, all of the challenges related to COVID. Um, there are so many demands on OT practitioners when we just want to walk in and, and provide the best care that we have. So thinking about because we haven't necessarily, because we know that um, across healthcare, the training has not been there for entry level. And so thinking about on our radar might not be you know, we look, for, we look for pain, like we've been taught to, as Kim mentioned, assess and ask, um, but maybe we need to make sure, especially if it's not the primary diagnosis, to when we see chronic pain or when we understand that there is pain, to just have this little light bulb that goes, it's like a little whisper, biopsychosocial, make sure related to pain that I take time in my habits and routines related to my clients that I'm thinking about that um, and trying to work that into where that's part of what we do with every client, because it may not say that on their chart. They may not say that they have chronic pain. Um, you know, hopefully it does, but, um, or, you know, maybe they are having some sort of acute condition that their pain is seems very unmanageable so that then we shift to consider that model and maybe not the traditional lens that we're used to doing to try to get through the day. Yeah. So as far as overcoming those challenges, you're basically saying we just need to begin changing the way we're doing <laughs> the way we're doing things, right? Like we need to begin making an almost an active and concerted effort to begin implementing a biopsychosocial, at least keeping it in the back of our minds when we're when we're seeing a patient, regardless of what's going on, right? And I think, you know, that seems, you know, for OT practitioners, I don't think it's a huge shift because I think we already practice, as we've talked a lot about today, in that biopsychosocial model. Just, but making sure that, you know, identifying some small changes that we can make, you know, it's a maybe a post-it note, um, you know, to kind of call our attention to it because we know we have to get outside of our um, routines and habits if we're not specifically thinking about that related to pain um, because maybe the training previously hasn't supported that. So I don't think, I, I think that, um, I think definitely from a, a systems standpoint in our healthcare, biopsychosocial would definitely benefit a lot. And I think OT is already there, but maybe for pain for practitioners that um, haven't had additional training, that that's just some small changes that you can make that aren't overwhelming that really can have a big impact for your clients that you're treating who have pain. And I think one thing we haven't talked about, but I think that the biopsychosocial model actually provides this wonderful opportunity in is that I think for a long time, we as occupational therapy practitioners could have kind of had our own language mm -hmm. and the frames and references that are frameworks that we use in our, um, models, I don't think that they've been very well understood by other healthcare professionals, specifically, you know, providers, medical providers. Um, and I think that the biopsychosocial model 
has really allowed us to start speaking this common language because the biopsychosocial model is much more broad than what we as OT practitioners, um, our frames of reference and the way we look at things, we break it down into even more factors. Yeah. But I think it's a really great starting point, right? That we start speaking a common language because when we can communicate effectively and when we can refer to things in terms of the biopsychosocial model, more and more practitioners are becoming, you know, um, medical practitioners and medical providers are becoming familiar with this. Now we can start really promoting um, our value and really articulating, I think, easier what it is that we do, that it's, you know, that it's beyond fine motor coordination. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. beyond dressing and bathing, right? That's how occupational therapists have, or occupational therapy practitioners have always practiced. And so I think Think there's this huge opportunity for us um, you know if we can start weaving that language into you know our discussions and how we promote our profession yeah I teach a, a student course here in Augusta about um, it's adult intervention and assessment and intervention and we talk about interprofessional communication and practice and one of the big one of the big exercises I do with them is try to have the students come up with, you know, quote unquote, non-OT language for when they're communicating with a doctor or communicating with, you know, even a physical therapist, you know, a lot of doctors don't understand what occupational deprivation is, right? <laughs> but there's ways that we can use common language to get everybody kind of on the same page. Absolutely. And I, and I think this is a great opportunity for our profession specifically. Um, and I don't think that we have always recognized that. I think that as Nicole and I practice in pain, you know, the more we practice, the more we realize there was a really big gap in Absolutely. how the psychologist and the psychiatrist and the medical providers and the nurse practitioners, the language that they use, the vocabulary, their perspectives on pain and how different they were than all of the rehab professionals. It was like yeah. we were almost speaking two different languages sometimes. And we credit a lot of our success into the fact that we understood we took the time to really go to learning um, events and things like that that were specific to those providers so we could understand what their perspectives were. And then we were able to communicate much more effectively. And the biopsychosocial model allows us to do that across the board, not just in pain. Yeah. No, that's great. Well, we're getting near the top of the hour here. <laughs> Thank you all very, very much for taking the time. I'm just going to pitch a question to both of you here. If you could just give somebody kind of like a final thought, big, big takeaways, what would they be? We'll start with you, Kim, and then we'll move to Nicole. Um, as far as the biopsychosocial model for pain or the big takeaway from what specifically? Uh, the biopsychosocial model for pain, yeah. Um, I would just encourage occupational therapy practitioners to really have confidence in their skills and their training in treating pain. And I would encourage them to seek a, a more in-depth understanding of pain as, you know, from that biopsychosocial um, perspective, but just really um, encourage and hopefully empower OT practitioners that you have this training and, and this is a field that you are well equipped to, to provide services in. All right. And I think, and I think for me, um, for OT practitioners to really take a step back and as much as you're able to, you know, use all of your active listening skills and empathy to really stop to think about that the clients who have especially chronic pain, what their lived experience is, how their almost all of their daily occupations are impacted by this, um, and really use all of that to then develop that therapeutic alliance to really begin to implement the biopsychosocial model. Um, because I think that that's where, that's when beautiful things happen. When we support our clients in their own goals uh, and support our clients through navigating the challenges that are getting in the way of the goals that they have. Awesome. Well, great. Thank you all very much. Um, if people want to find out more about you, about your work, about Aspire OT, where would they go? 
So our website is www.aspireot.us uh, and we do offer live um, courses related to treating pain as well as webinars. Um, and soon we plan to have uh, an on-demand class that folks can take um, at any point uh, at their own pace as well. Awesome. Well, thank you all very much for taking the time, guys. We appreciate thank you, you for having us. Mm -hmm. Appreciate you asking us. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Nicole and Kimberly from Aspire OT talking about how clinicians can actually treat and serve and communicate with patients in chronic pain. It is not a secret that the biopsychosocial model is something that is foundational here to the to the work at the Better Outcomes Show and to the consulting work that I've been able to do for the last few years through Rehab You Practice Solutions. I think if I could only add my own personal takeaway after listening to it again is again the importance of communication and how we communicate with patients not only to manage their expectations not only to provide educations but to truly empower them to be drivers in their own health care and we talked a little bit uh, with Nicole and Kim about motivational interviewing and how you structure questions and what types of questions you ask and how that you know can affect the perception of your your clients and the uh, the way they the way they think about what is going on in their situation it, it makes them if you ask a question a certain way you can have the patient almost step back and be a little bit more um, reflective if you would about their situation and why they're making a decision or why they think they need a certain treatment over another again i don't think i can over state the importance of being able to effectively communicate and how big of a skill and how crucial of a skill that truly is in healthcare. You know, I'm, I'm always saying the hard skills are the soft skills, you know, or the soft skills are the hard skills, you know, like it's very easy to get all the technical knowledge down, but what we really need to be focusing on is how we communicate, how we build relationships with patients, all of that. So those are my thoughts on that. Anyways, if you like the show, head on over to iTunes. Give us a rating and review. Subscribe if you want to. You can go to www.betteroutcomes.show. Sign up for our email list, and we will send you the new episodes as we drop them. We drop uh, interviews every other week, and then every now and then you'll get a bonus episode, a solo episode, or you know, sometimes, sometimes a bonus episode that is an interview. So... Uh, until the next episode, guys, be safe, be healthy. I'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.